On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. David Mafood about Anselm and the Atonement, and we cover a ton of topics. We cover things like what is the Atonement, what are the most common ways to think about it today, and how does Anselm really fit into this paradigm? Why would anyone think the Incarnation and the Cross are necessary for redemption? What's unique about how Anselm fits into answering this question? What is his account of freedom? Why does the majority of the medieval tradition reject Anselm's view? How does Aquinas on the atonement compare to someone like Anselm? Does the necessity of atonement minimize God's freedom and the gratuity of grace? And much, much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up on Twitter or Facebook or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak, and we are a podcast that's dedicated to serious thinking for a serious church and in tr- endeavoring to think seriously about a lot of topics. We've tried to create or encourage or cultivate uh, an intellectual culture of things like charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. So basically that means that we think that we should be virtuous thinkers in how we understand other people's arguments and how we treat them as human people, uh, or I guess human persons is the proper term. And then also, flip side, we want to be very critical in, what we, in, in our rigor as we think. Uh, we found that a lot of people in our sort of context, me and Brandon started the podcast, we're both Baptists, and if you think broader than that, sort of like... A, American evangelicals, whatever that word means, let's just assume it means something. There is a latent sort of anti-intellectualism, and if not an anti-intellectualism, a suspicion toward sort of more academic theology. And so we wanted to like make sure that we reverse that trend and say, no, 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 this this matters, but we want to treat people with kindness and care. And so hopefully... In all of our interviews, that's what you experience. So if you're a new listener, you're going to find that we talk to all sorts of people all across the map. You're going to find that you agree with some people and you disagree with some people, and that's good. Uh, it helps you to just develop sort of like intellectual mul- uh, muscles that I think are congruent with the Christian life because we think of things like James 3, the wisdom that is from above is meek and it's, it's, um, it's open to reason, it's kind, it's gentle, and that's what we kind of want to promote here. Now, today, I'm uh, thrilled to introduce you all to Dr. David Mafood. Um, we've interacted quite a bit on Twitter, and so he's a fun interlocutor there. It's amazing all the people you've, you can meet online. I think it's really neat how that works, especially when you meet cool people, and you get to like learn and just kind of like have fun and spar back and forth. So I'm, I'm thrilled to talk to him about Anselm and the Atonement in particular. So there's going to be a lot of questions we have here. Before we jump in, David, tell me just a little bit about yourself. Like, what do you do? Uh, and then maybe what was it that first drew you to thinking about the atonement and Anselm? Hey, man. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I, I really enjoy what you do, and uh, I'm grateful to be a part of it. Um, just a little bit about me. I actually grew up in uh, Churches of Christ, so close in some ways to the Baptist perspective of uh, this podcast. But uh, but I, I grew up in churches where you didn't go to seminary, you know, you didn't go study theology academically. So when I did my undergrad, I studied physics, and, and I enjoyed it, but at a certain point, I realized, hey, most of my free time I spend thinking about theology, and I thought at some point, hey, maybe I could, maybe I could do that. So I ended up going to graduate school for theology, and, uh, you know, probably the biggest question I had was about the cross and atonement and how to understand it, and, you know, difficulties with the typical ways that that's talked about, at least in my experience. And so uh, early on in my master's degree, uh, my, one of my mentor had me read Anselm, and I did not find what I expected to find based on what everybody says about him. So I was like, oh, this is interesting. And that led me to an MA thesis, uh, mainly on Anselm's methodology, less so on the substantive claims he makes. And then it, it led to a dissertation uh, in my doctoral program that's more about um, the substantive stuff he says about the atonement. It reinterprets Curtis Homo uh, in some ways and then uh, tries to develop a, a picture of the atonement based on Anselm that I think is actually a pretty good one. 
and tried to defend it a bit. So um, that's how I got interested in this topic. I mean, I grew up a Christian and grew up believing this is how we're saved. And so, you know, I, I found in Anselm a really helpful interlocutor to think about how that all works. Um, the other thing I wanted to say before we dive in was, I don't know if you know this, but my, my background um, philosophically for what it is, is analytic as well. So, you know, I did my PhD with Billy Abraham, who was a big voice in analytic theology. And so I appreciate that aspect of what, what you bring to the table as well. And Anselm fits so neatly with that kind of precision and pursuit of, uh, rigorous arguments. So that, yeah, Billy, yeah. Billy Abraham was really like, I view, view him sort of like as a model theologian in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, man, Southern Methodist, him and Bruce Marshall together. I mean, yeah. <laughs> it's hard to beat yeah. those guys. Well, and, and Bruce probably is more like Billy came away from the, this dissertation, which you looked at, uh, I think totally unconvinced, but hmm. <laughs> which is fine. He was fine with me <laughs> writing a dissertation that he ultimately disagreed with, but Bruce was more sort of on board with it. But, uh, uh, yeah, Billy, Billy is great. I just finished actually a couple weeks back a, a chapter for a book about Billy uh, and his his work on philosophy of religion, um, and it was really lovely to write that. But it got me thinking about philosophy again in a way I hadn't done in a while, and so yeah. I was just uh, thinking about that. That's awesome. So I guess at, to set the table for talk about the atonement, um, and particularly Anselm, maybe just help me to understand like sort of like the common ways of thinking about the atonement today, mm-hmm. and then where is it that Anselm might fit in that conversation. Yeah, so um, I'm going to talk about that at kind of two levels. One is the sort of substance, uh, what Anselm or what people say about how the atonement works, and then two about sort of what the task of atonement theology is. The sort of understanding what's what, what's this all about. First, so obviously in a lot of churches, um, especially conservative ones, and in general, sort of popular understandings of Christianity, I think you have a pretty unsophisticated version of penal substitution is probably the most popular. In other words, God has to punish sin because he's just. And so to spare us from punishment, God punishes Jesus instead of us, and therefore we can be forgiven. That can be worked out in a lot of care, um, but in the way it's preached in churches and in our songs, sometimes it often isn't. Um, But that view, whenever it's come up in the history of the church, uh, has always inspired opposition as well. Um, and you actually see that in Curt Anselm. Anselm, uh, Anselm's interlocutor in that text uh, asks the question, well, how is it okay for God to punish his son uh, who's innocent? And Anselm says, well, he didn't. Right. So there's a, a opposition to that view that goes deep historically, but it also produces what is often talked about as the moral exemplar view, which is probably really popular in, in liberal theological circles where Christ saves us by his example uh, of, of God's love for us and his example of human love for God, uh, things like that. And nowadays, in academic circles, it's probably common to try to recover patristic ideas like Christus Victor, where Christ saves by defeating the devil for us, uh, recapitulation, where God saves by kind of living through the stages of human life, but righteously um, recapitulating what humanity got wrong and enabling us to participate in the divine nature and that sort of thing. There's a lot of recovery of that stuff that's common in at least academic circles nowadays. Um, And I want to say, in a certain way, Anselm fits with all of that except the first one, right? All of that except for the the lazy version of penal substitution. Um, Because he actually is going to affirm most of that. And that brings me to the methodological piece, which is the common way to frame this doctrine is to say, well, in the history of the church, you have several theories. You have the Christus Victor theory, and you have the moral exemplar theory. And the task of atonement theology is to figure out, well, what's the best theory? Um, And that leads people to kind of look for figures to identify a unique, distinct theory they can set against other theories. And so you get where, if you say, well, Anselm uh, articulates what we call a satisfaction theory, that means he's not in favor of a Christus Victor theory or a moral example theory. You've got to pick one. And that's the first thing that surprised me when I read Anselm, (laughs) is he actually says, oh, Christ had to defeat the devil for us. Um, he says that Christ, it's, it's extremely fitting that Christ sets an example for us. That's part of how he saves us. So 
I discovered Anselm holds Christus Victor and he holds moral exemplar. Um, and I would argue he holds recapitulation. And so you've got a, the, the methodological piece is like, oh, this, this way of thinking about the doctrine just isn't quite right, or at least it could be misleading. Um, so I think Anselm doesn't fit into just one of those theories. He actually gives you a synthetic uh, picture. And uh, the, the vision of the task of atonement theology that I've picked up from Anselm is basically this. What you have is a series of elemental claims about what Christ does. He defeats the devil. He sets us a saving example. He gives us a saving teaching. He offers a perfect sacrifice that erases the debt of sin. And you've got to figure out how to make sense of all of that. That's the task of atonement theology. It's not to pick one, um, nor is it to just say, well, we can just mash them up. But you've got to figure out how do they relate, how do they, how do they fit together to be a coherent story. And I think that's really what the task of atonement theology is for Anselm, and probably for a lot of pre-modern figures. For, for Athanasius, I think this is true as well. It's really the modern period where you get, no, you've got to have a clean typology. Um, so, okay, so there's, there's a big double answer to your question. Yeah, no, that's helpful. And before I move on with Anselm, I, I am a little curious. You sparked my ideas here, and I know Joshua McNall has the book, The Mosaic mm. of Atonement. Is, is what he's doing in any way similar to yeah, how Anselm's yeah. thinking? It is. I think the key difference is McNall is committed to retrieving penal substitution in, uh, in a way that I think Anselm just isn't. Um, yeah, okay. Depending on how you... I mean, again, these, these terms can get so fine-grained. And what does it mean to punish? And what does it mean... Uh, McNall, I, I read his book and I was... Like, I'm not sure he wants to say that God is punishing Jesus. And so he's very careful about that. So I think, does that count as penal substitution? Well, for him it does, but for a lot of people, that would seem to be the essential claim of penal substitution that they're worried about, is God punishing Jesus. So anyway, the difference would be that. He's trying to retain that piece. But but I was, uh, that one, and there's another one, um, Jeremy Treat has a book called uh, The Crucified King. Yeah. Both of those books, when I read them, I thought, oh, this we're doing something very similar, which is Got we're it. trying to, to give a picture which holds these things together. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. Okay, that's helpful. So I wanted to zero in a little bit on the necessity and fittingness piece. So I know I heard you mention a couple of times, you know, Christ had to, and it was fitting. And I know there's a lot of conversation about, like, is the atonement or, I guess, the incarnation and the cross, those sort of things, are they necessary? Are they fitting? And it seems to me that those terms might mean different things. So just like help me to understand that general conversation before I press in on some questions about like, is this coherent or not? Absolutely. That's a great question. And I, the first thing I want to say is, I think looking at the medievals, you'll see, you, you can sort of see that actually you could hold a satisfaction view without agreeing with Anselm that it's necessary. <laughs> You could think it's just this is God how how God chose to work, um, but Anselm wants to say it's necessary, so we're going to unpack that. Uh, here's how I would basically tell this story. I think Christianity obviously begins with the idea that the incarnation and cross are actually how God saves us, and early on you have a lot of pagan objections and Jewish objections that that's absurd, right? That it's unbefitting of God to say He became human unbefitting of God to say he died on a cross, right? Um, so you get Christian thinkers like Athanasius or Origen who want to argue it's actually really good that God did this. Um, it's not unfitting at all. And the way they tend to do this is they take uh, Athanasius on the Incarnation as a great example of this. First, God would not be good if he just allowed humanity to fall away entirely from the purposes for which he made them. So that's not an option. Second, God goes to the, that God goes to these lengths to save us shows how good he is. It's actually extremely fitting. And then to show that, what Athanasius does is to take each piece of the narrative and show this is really, really good. It's really good that he did it at this time and in this way and on a cross rather than dying of illness and all this stuff. And the picture that you get from all that could easily suggest that, well, with all that in mind, obviously this is what God would do. Because of who he is. How could he possibly do anything else? Um, so that leads to the idea of necessity, that given the situation, 
and given God's perfection, necessarily this is what God would do. Athanasius doesn't quite say that. Nobody quite says that. Um, but you can see how it gets there. The other side of it is there's a tension there because everyone also wants to say that God is free and that uh, we don't want to say somehow God is constrained to do this, that he's stuck doing this. Uh, we want to say he's free. We want to say his grace is not obligated. It's just it's, it's out of his goodness and generosity. And so there's the, in the patristic tradition, I think you just have both sides of that tension. Like in Augustine, Augustine will say God could have done could have saved us another way. Um but there's a tension there. So I think that all comes to a head in Anselm. Part of this is because with Anselm, I think we're at the beginning of scholasticism. He's a Benedictine monk, but he's also trained in Boethian logic. And, you know, he, he's, he's part of his, just who he was, extremely precise. So he brings a precision and clarity here to try to hold this tension together. Um, and so... What he, his concern is apologetic, like Athanasius. He wants to show to people who don't accept it um, that actually this is really, they should believe it. They should believe God would become incarnate. So he wants an argument that shows that if you grant certain things, now it's a little tricky to specify which things, but it would include that there's a God, that he created us for blessedness and communion with him, but that we sinned, then he thinks it follows necessarily, that is, it could not be otherwise, that God would become incarnate and save us by an offering of his own human life and resistance to sin and thereby satisfy the debt of human sin and offer God the honor which humanity owed, so that, by joining ourselves to him, sinners could be forgiven. Nansom thinks you can reconcile that necessity, which he wants to be a pretty serious, logical necessity, with God's freedom, uh, because he thinks freedom is not about the ability... Well, we can talk about freedom actually a little later, but... He thinks he can reconcile it with God's freedom and with the gratuity of grace. Um, his account of freedom, we'll see, is not libertarian. It's not about whether you could do otherwise. So that's part of part of why. Um, but so that so I think basically Anselm puts the problem in the starkest terms, uh, and that then leads to some other developments, which we might talk about next, I guess. Yeah. Now, now you've got me my interest peaked in in the freedom discussion because I know Catherine Rogers was pretty strongly argued that Anselm is a libertarian. Correct. Well, okay. In when it comes to humans. Okay. It to humans, got it. And um, the reason is, that, and it's not about freedom. For Anselm, freedom doesn't require uh, the ability to do otherwise. But otherwise, the saints in heaven would not be free. Right. And Christ would not be free. Right. Uh, because we would say Christ would not sin necessarily, at least Anselm would say, Christ necessarily would not sin. So uh, freedom is not the issue, but but for moral responsibility, Anselm thinks your choice has to come from you. It can't be dictated by, yeah. the, by the nature you're given. So Anselm comes up with a way to say that, that humans and angels have the capacity to sin or not at some point. And then necessity will follow from that later. Like if you sin then you might become fallen in a way that now necessarily you sin. But it came from you to begin with. But God is unique because God has a saity. And so whatever God is, is from himself. And so there's no like there's no one else to blame. And so therefore God, uh, Rogers wants to defend a necessitarianism about God pretty strongly, which some other Anselm scholars disagree with. And I think she goes a little far because he never says this. He never says this. But he, he does want to say that, at least with the, the Incarnation, it can be, it's actually, if God, if the Incarnation is the most fitting way to save, and God could not do it, that would mean God is less than perfectly free. Because God might fail to act towards the best thing, um, and that's a, that's a kind of liability, it's a kind of weakness, it's not a kind of freedom. Uh, so, that's, so that, yeah, so that, that, that hopefully so, that helps. On fittingness, is there any sort of like, I mean, I know he's not going to lay out like, here's the necessary and sufficient conditions for what counts as fitting. But like, is (laughs) there like some sort of like intuition that he's working with where it's like, well, it's like uh, beautiful or it's like shaped in a particular way. Like, what is his account of fittingness supposed to work work out? Yeah, I'm not aware that he ever defines it. Uh, No, convenience is the, the Latin term, right? Um, it, it gets a stricter sort of treatment later by other thinkers, uh, who take his arguments and, and develop them. Uh, certainly Aquinas and certainly, um, 
like Robert Grossetest is another yeah. one who where you can see developments on this. But but I don't think he defines it. But I think you've got the, the gist of it, which is there's a certain beauty to things or an ugliness to things, which would be unfittingness. And so he doesn't really need you to agree on like the essence of fittingness. He just needs you to agree like, well, this would be unfitting, so God can't do it. And it, unless you would say, no, that is fitting, you have to follow his reasoning. Uh, because no one wants to say God could do what's unfitting. At least Anselm thinks no one would ever say that. So uh, I don't think he defines it. But it is this kind of aesthetic criterion. It's also kind of moral, right? Bad things are obviously not fitting of God. And I think it actually, if you want to really develop it, you'd have to go to the proslogian. Because like the concept of God as that than which a greater cannot be thought like gives you all these perfections. And so... Uh, Fittingness, I think, flows directly from that. Like, God would not be that than which a greater can't be thought, unless he always does what's maximally fitting, what's best, what's maximally beautiful. So, yeah, hopefully that yeah, gives no, you that, a sense. That's yeah. perfect. That's helpful. So I, I want to know a little bit about why it seems that, based on if I read you correctly, the majority of the medieval tradition seems to want to push back on the necessitarian aspect. Yeah, so I think... The way I read the, the history, and it, you know, I'm only so-so with this, right? This is like so much history to try and, like, digest. But the way I read it is Anselm articulates that problem in a really decisive way. And then from there, the scholastics pick up the, the concern for God's freedom and God's power in a much more robust way than happened before. Um, so with Aquinas... Well, you know, there's lots, lots of details here. But with Aquinas, he's more nervous about saying it's necessary. And he get, he's a lot more uh, detailed and fine-grained in, in different kinds of necessity, right? If you start to read Aquinas, you start to see, uh, is it necessary? And he'll say, well, there's two senses. Necessary is said in two ways. And then the next time he says it again. Necessary is said in two ways, but it's two different ways. So, <laughs> like, by the end, you've got, a, like, a lot of different kinds of necessity. Um, but he wants to say, like, he'll say it's necessary... Um, supposing the supposing the end in mind, right? So, like, supposing God's chosen to do this, then it's necessary that He does it. And you almost wonder, like, is that just trivial, you know, or what do you mean? Um, but he's very nervous about saying it. But then with Duns Scotus, it's like even further. He wants it to be a really undetermined choice on God's part. So while he wants Scotus more than Aquinas, like, takes up a. Uh, Anselm's account of what God actually does in the atonement, but he wants to, but he pushes back real hard on the necessity. He wants to say, no, God could have done otherwise. God could have valued, uh, so he'll say, if God chose to, uh, accept from Adam some act of obedience as satisfaction, God could have done that. And that would have been fine because it's up to God. And it would have been fitting because God chose it. Um, and so he pushes back on the necessity piece quite hard, I think harder than Aquinas does in towards what some might call voluntarism. I don't want to, I want to be careful about that, but uh, he pushes harder in that direction in ways that I think are worth grappling with uh, while affirming the substance that what Christ does is make satisfaction. Yeah. Okay. How does Aquinas's paradigm on atonement in general compare to Anselm? Yeah, uh, this is a great question, too. I think Aquinas is, is greatly underappreciated on atonement. Uh, and I think part of it is because his presentation of the atonement, such as it is, in the Summa Theologiae, doesn't seem to offer a distinct theory in the sense that everyone wants to look for. Um, with Thomas, what you get is more like this. You know, He'll say, well, does Christ save by, by making satisfaction? Yes, and here's how. Does Christ save by defeating the devil? Yes. You know, does he save by sacrifice? Yes, right? So, uh, and part of the difference may be due to genre, right? So, I think what Anselm's doing in, in Curtius Homo, it's a dialogue, and it's trying to do a particular thing, which is show the incarnation is necessary. And so what he emphasizes is what he finds as a sort of logical hinge that he thinks gets you necessity. He's not giving a comprehensive, systematic treatment of the atonement. He's not saying everything there is to say about it. He's just saying, here's what makes it necessary. Thomas is writing a summa, right? So he's, he's more synthetic, more comprehensive. He's going to consider everything that he can think of that there is to say and say why it's so. So for that reason, I actually think Thomas is probably a better 
like place to start if you're just a, a like what do I do with this doctrine? Tom, like reading those bits of the Summa, uh, the Tertiary, in part three, uh, question 46 to 48 or so, just great little bit where you get all these different pieces from the tradition all in there. Um, so that's a big difference in, in their presentations and in what you can get out of them. Um, the other thing is, I mean, there's, there's a lot of other little developments. Um, one is, uh, to do with the sacrament of penance for Thomas, he connects satisfaction to the sacrament of penance a lot more in a lot more detail, right? Anselm doesn't do that at all, actually. Um, so there's a lot of things like that where Thomas is just more thorough, more detailed. A lot of those, I think you can, you can say that's a good addition or a bad addition, right? But you can sort yeah. of, it's, it's development. Um, so I have no idea the history here is the sacrament of penance. Does that like come into play like after Anselm more? And is that part of potentially the oh reason? Um, no, I mean, it existed before, but okay. I just think Anselm was not being um, systematic in that in quite Got the it. way that he didn't, ha he didn't write it nearly as much. Right. So it's hard to compare, you know, um, but for Thomas, right. It's, it's, he considers the question, I think in actually a really neat way, can you make satisfaction for someone else? Um, and he says, well, you can if you're joined in wills with mm. them. And in other words, like if, if I have to make now, you know, I'm not in the tradition that does penance, you know, you're not either. So this is just kind of like thinking about it. Right. Yeah. But, uh, for, um, for Thomas, right. If you can't do the penance that's assigned to you for whatever reason, infirmity or whatever, but we're friends, right? I might offer to do it for you, but that's effective to the degree that you will it along with me. You really want to, but you can't, right? Um, and that, to me, that's actually kind of beautiful, right? It, there's something beautiful about looking at it like we as a human family owe to God um, this victory over the devil that he asked of us from our first parents in the garden. He asked them to obey in the face of temptation. And we all now, because of the fall, can't do it. Right. And so Jesus comes along and does it. And insofar as we're joined to his will, it's like it's like we're doing it together in a way. Right. We're joined to him doing it, even though it's all his action. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so so I think there's that's some nice development in Thomas, even though, again, this sacrament of penance is it just gives him an interesting, interesting development. You can apply to um, how we benefit from his activity. Right. Yeah. No, that makes sense. So one question that I have that I imagine maybe maybe there's a good amount that seem to feel this weight of this worry is the necessity of the atonement in some way minimizing the gratuity of grace or the God's freedom. I think that's probably a common question that people get with several doctrines, including divine simplicity. And it seems to me that the solution probably is similar in, so, in a lot of those ways. So just like walk me through like why would that necessity not minimize those things well so um freedom again you, you have to sort of digest anselm's view of freedom which is that it isn't to do with with being able to fail being able to fail so I, the the analogy i give students is like this like if you imagine a runner imagine like the most perfect possible runner a runner who 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 always if they're trying to run always makes the correct step, right? Always makes exactly the correct step, uh, given all the circumstances, how fast they want to run, the terrain, etc. Could Could a perfect runner trip? And I'd have to say, well, no. Uh, they could dive, right? They could fall on purpose, but they couldn't trip. Because tripping seems, at least as I'm going to use it, the term now, is going to be basically accidentally, right? Making a mistake, making an error. They can't do that because they're a perfect runner. For Anselm, freedom is kind of like that. It's like you can, you always make the choice that is correctly uh, suited to your end. And so God's freedom, God's more free than us because we can sin. And our freedom will be greater when we can no longer sin, right? When we're beatified. Uh, so that's a, that's a key piece of the freedom. The gratuity is a different slightly different question and Anselm considers it uh, and it's interesting in Latin right the term gratia is a term for grace which means like a gift or favor but it also means thanks right and so the gratuity of grace for Anselm is like the fact that it evokes thanks 
And that's the way he considers the question is, is if God has to do it, then do we even need to thank it? Like, why is it worthy of thanks? When someone just does what they're obliged to do, we don't necessarily say thank you, or at least not, not very seriously. Um, so he considers it, but he says there's actually a kind of necessity that increases our gratitude. And the examples he gives there is like making a promise. Where if I, if I, if I do something nice for you spontaneously, that's cool. But if I made a promise to do this now, I'm taking away some options from myself, right? I, I no longer have the option to not do it if I don't want to be called a liar. And that doesn't seem nice. So, so he's like, okay, so I've, I've given up not only the not doing the thing, but actually the option of not doing it. And so in a sense, I've given even more to you by making the promise. And that's the analogy he'll give. So, so then if I do the thing willingly, now if I do it begrudgingly, like, fine, I promise to do this podcast, so I'll get on. Then you might say, well, that's a little less worthy of thanks, right? That's, that's not very good. But if I, if I promise to do a thing and then I do it willingly, uh, it's actually more, in Anselm's mind, uh, more to be thanked, more grazia, than if I just did it spontaneously. So it's like making, so he compares it to monastic vows, right? The monk not only gives up the possibility of marital relations, well, so he doesn't just give up marital relations, he gives up the option of marital relations too. So it's even more. Um, now, if the monk does this grudgingly, that's not meritorious. But if he does it willingly, that's even, that's more. So uh, I, I think you could liken it to marriage too, right? Like you don't have to enter into a marriage, but if you do, you're not just doing the things you promise. You're you're doing even more by promising to do them. So, so that's his solution. I think actually that's kind of neat. There's something there. Uh, and I oh you know the the other piece I sent you, which was from the dissertation. Was, I was trying to push back on Bruce uh, <laughs> Marshall because he seems more sympathetic to Thomas on this issue. Doesn't like, doesn't find Anselm's, uh, though he, he he does know it. Um, doesn't find Anselm's answer here all that convincing. And I think it actually kind of it actually is a pretty good answer. But I think for for most of the uh, the later medievals, it's it's just not good enough unless it's. It could be otherwise. That's the sense of gratuity you really need, is that mm. God would be perfectly good uh, if he didn't do it. So that's the shape of the debate. Yeah. I don't know how to resolve it, but I like I like Anselm on it. Yeah, no, I think my intuitions probably track closer to Anselm, but like I can totally see why someone would want to, to push back on that. It makes sense. No, me so, too. A, a, a somewhat related question. I mean when we're thinking about the shape of this debate, why is it that Anselm and others want to say that there must be satisfaction for sin? Um, so why couldn't God just simply just overlook it? That's a great question because a lot of people really get this wrong in, in the way they interpret Anselm. It's not that God is offended, right? It's not that God's like, just, he's insulted. It's that uh, I, I think the best way to think about it is the self-consistency of God's intention. It's part of his perfection. So put it like this, God puts Adam, put Adam and Eve in the garden and implicitly asks them to resist the devil. He doesn't say that, right? But he says, don't eat from the tree, knowing that the devil's there and, and is going to tempt them. So God has asked of them a victory over the devil. And that's a big thing to ask, right? But if God asks it, that must mean, actually, that's a really good thing to ask. <laughs> it's actually really, really good. Um, and so... When we don't offer it, and not only that, I should say too, God asked that with the idea of rewarding humanity with beatitude for fulfilling it. God could have done something else maybe, but that's how he chose to have our obedience acted out in order to reward us with beatitude. If we then fail to offer it, then the good thing that God will doesn't come to pass. And for Anselm, if God then just says, well, okay, no big deal, right? There's, there's a deep problem there. There's an incongruity. There's an ugliness, right? The, the, the order of the universe is not maintained in the way that God laid it out to be. And, and he actually, one of my favorite little, just little arguments in Curtis Homo, he says, imagine somebody was just made beatified without satisfaction. God just made them just. Well, what would they will? They would will the opposite of what they willed when they sinned. Which is to say, they would want their wrong to be set right. They would want to go back and fix that. If there's no satisfaction, that means it's not fixed. So they would have, Anselm says, an unfulfilled desire. 
And a beatified person can't have an unfulfilled desire, right? So he says there has to be satisfaction. Um, by the way, like I like the way Eleanor Stump talks about Anselm, she will argue that he does. He only thinks satisfaction is needed on God's end. But that argument is precisely that it's needed for us. It's dignifying to us because we can know we're invited into beatitude having done the thing God wanted us to do. Like not me, but Christ, right? And insofar as I'm in Christ, I'm part of the, the family which has offered God the honor he wanted from us. And that's, that's something quite beautiful. So, so that's why I'd say at the end of the day, um, God cannot, for Anselm, cannot uh, forgive without satisfaction because it would be allowing ugliness, allowing the good he willed not to come to pass and just pretending that it did. Uh, that's not befitting of the one who is that than which a greater can't be thought. Right. So one thing that I wanted to make sure to ask you uh, before I forgot was you, you mentioned earlier on with Aquinas and sort of like the, the, the penance thing, the friendship relationship mm-hmm, with atonement. Yeah. I'd love to just hear more about, like, what does friendship have to do with the atonement in general? Is that something that Anselm uses at all and deploys at all? Or is that just like a, a nice framework to think about it? I think it's much more present in Aquinas. Um, Anselm does say, right, it, when he comes to the reward of Christ's offering, Anselm does say, well, Christ himself doesn't need any reward. <laughs> But he merits one, so what's fitting is that it be given to those who love him. So love is already there, right? And it doesn't use the term friendship, but love is there. Um, but in Aquinas, friendship becomes a much, like a crucial category. It's really interesting. And, and here, by the way, just to say it, I'm, I'm heavily indebted to a book by Daniel Schwartz called Aquinas on Friendship, where he traces this theme Um and I think for Aquinas, it's crucial because like he has a certain account of friendship from Aristotle, where friendship is this thing between equals. It's a kind of union of wills between equals. But we have in John that Jesus says, I no longer call you servants, but friends. And so somehow we can be friends of God where there's radical inequality, right? So I think for Aquinas, it's a really interesting concept. Friendship with God becomes like a really deep theme in how he thinks of beatitude uh it's it's our it's a union of wills where we our will is aligned with god and we delight in him and he delights in us because we love the things he loves and we love him the way he's fit to be loved right so so that's friendship now satisfaction i think comes with this in view you can see well it's kind of a way to restore friendship where it's been broken if i've done something wrong and i've harmed you um now for Aquinas, it's clear within friendship, like you can pass over a lot of wrongs without satisfaction, right? You can just overlook it uh, because like in virtue of the friendship, which is like this substantive thing. But some wrongs are so serious, right? That they, that they break the friendship where I'm violating, I'm opposing like the very thing that united us in some way. And uh, at that point, the friendship is broken and to restore it, satisfaction is a way to do that. If I, if I, if I try to repair the wrong, um, what's happening is my action is reflecting truth where it had reflected falsehood. Like if I did the wrong, right? If I, if I broke your window through negligence, right, I fix it, that acknowledges, well, I wasn't right to break it. That your window deserved to, be, to, be, <laughs> to have its integrity respected. And uh, I failed in that. Now I'm acknowledging that, right? So it's a way of moving wolves back in alignment. I think of it like with my kids, you know, when they fight, you know, something's gone wrong. I say, well, you say sorry, you know, you pick it up, you give it to her, and then you give him a hug, right? I'm making them act out where their wills ought to be. <laughs> and in a certain way, that's what's happening in the atonement, that Christ is acting out the, what a human will ought to do in the world of sin, which is resist temptation utterly even to the point of death and he does that um and that that his will didn't need to be moved but ours did right and and insofar as we see it we're like drawn into his movement of will his his love of god and indeed for for thomas right his love the love of god is poured out in our hearts by the spirit and that enables us to be uh friends of god and to will along with christ so the satisfaction moves us. And, and this is why Aquinas says, though God could forgive, 
in, in terms of justice, God could forgive without satisfaction. He saves through satisfaction because it's dignifying and merciful to us. It's better for us. Hmm. Um, it's, it's purely generous. He doesn't get anything out of it, right? Yeah. We do. So a common objection, it seems, to most atonement theories is, uh, at least in our contemporary period, seems to be sort of like the oppressive nature of them, uh, particularly abusive to women. Are Anselmian or Thomistic accounts, do they lead to abuse or oppression? Or are they potentially, I guess, you know, if you want to bring in penal substitutionary atonement, then you might say, well, they're less abusive than that potentially, if you construe it a particular way? Good question. Um, and I I guess I would think there are different ways to apply these models. And so you could apply them in a way which is oppressive, which is what people point to. So, for instance, right, with, with take Anselm's account. For Anselm, right, you, you, Christ saves us by undergoing suffering he didn't deserve. And uh, the love out of which he bore it, God honors so one might think that means God just values passive suffering and we imitate Christ by undergoing suffering that we don't deserve. Um, so you get the story people tell, you know, I'm sure happens, uh, I'm sure has happened, you know, where, where someone with an abusive spouse will be told, well, this is just your cross to bear. In other words, implicitly saying, right, you be like Jesus by just bearing it, by just suffering it. And I think that's oppressive, right, 100%. Um, I think it says to people who perhaps could resist and get out of the situation without any bad result, right? Tell them, no, just stay in it. And you get people uh, pointing to analyses of like African-American slavery in the United States that, that make this connection. Like, well, they're suffering just like Christ. And I think that's an oppressive application. But I think there's another way to make the analogy. And it would be this way to say, Instead of analogizing the victim as Christ, analogize the victim as the wronged person, right? And so the person who's been wronged, if if this account, if Anselm's account of satisfaction is right, or if Thomas's is right, then that wronged person can be even kind towards the person who wronged them by not simply forgiving, right? I mean, by by requiring an act of satisfaction in terms of setting things right. Now. Uh, forgiveness and we can parse that carefully i would say they should forgive in some sense but they might still require satisfaction in other words you might say well i i forgive you in the sense that i don't will that you suffer i'm not out to get you but the wrong that you've done is so serious that we can't maintain the relationship unless you do something to set it right that actually would move the will back into alignment with truth and justice and so i think like that if that's if Anselm's story is right, that's what God does to us. And so a wronged person could do that and, and not only be justified, but be loving by doing it. So I think there are, there are better ways to apply the analogy um, that I would argue are not necessarily oppressive. So, and it can even help us think about how do we address situations like that in a just way. Yeah, no, that, that's really good. So one thing I did want to have you spend a little time on is your own personal account of the atonement. How does that compare to something like penal substitutionary atonement? And when I say penal substitution, I mean the more consistent kind, not the sort of like Christus odium sort of stuff. I'm just going to ignore that. That's fine. Yeah, no, no. And, and the truth is like, I've spent less time on, on penal substitution. <laughs> uh, I get past the 14th century and I'm like, eh. <laughs> but that's, that's my failing. That's not any comment <laughs> on uh, the quality. Um, but I would say it's essential to affirm penal substitution in at least this sense. Christ undergoes sufferings that he didn't deserve, but we do. And they're the kind of sufferings, including death, which when we undergo them, because we're sinners, they are just punishments. And that's part of how he makes satisfaction for us. So we can say that Christ saves us by suffering our punishment uh, in just that sense. But the difference is, for me, since he does not deserve those sufferings, and for him they're entirely voluntary, um, they're not properly speaking a punishment of him. 
They're not imposed on him the way a punishment necessarily is. Um, he takes them on voluntarily, and so um, that's why we'd say, properly, most properly speaking, it's an act of satisfaction. But it takes the form of taking things that are punishments for us. So, personally, I find that more morally intelligible. Um, it enables me to say that God doesn't punish an innocent person in place of the guilty. In fact, that's what we unjust humans do, like when they crucify Jesus in place of Barabbas. Like, that's evil. That's not good. Um, but at the same time, it gives a window into how his voluntary suffering of that very injustice, out of love, constitutes a beautiful offering to God. And in virtue of that, our debt is satisfied. So I think it lets you maintain all of the rich imagery and hymns and the language you know, in Isaiah, right? By his wounds were healed and all that stuff. And even, even like it was the Lord's will to crush him, right? You can take that in a certain sense. I just think it helps you make moral sense of it a little better. And I, yeah. I recognize, like, gosh, the ways that penal substitution theorists have, have parsed this stuff out is so complex and, and it, it, it when you read some of it I'm like oh okay that's pretty much what I said um, <laughs> it's just do you call it penal substitution or not right? yeah no that makes sense yeah. so this is maybe a little bit tangential but just something you said piqued my interest so you mentioned how the event of the son being crucified is an uh, experiencing an unjust event and it seems for whatever reason people online like to say that they don't like the idea of that being unjust or him potentially being a victim of some sort. Um, in what's, is it true to say that Christ is a victim in it, even if it's necessary? I think so. Um, what is a victim? Uh, okay, I'd put it this way. Um, and this is just drawing on Thomas. Thomas takes up this question, and he will say, well, it, it was evil in terms of the intentions of the people who did it. But it was good in the intentions of Christ who underwent it. And, of course, we know, right, Christ himself says, right, no one takes my life from me, I lay it down of my own accord. So the ultimately determinative one is somehow Jesus, but the, the violence, right, and the evil comes from uh, an evil will, uh, a misjudgment. Jesus says they don't know what they're doing. But uh, nonetheless, it's a it's a it's an injustice, and in that he doesn't deserve it. And so, um, I I think you can't deny that, and it's helpful to be able to see that there's almost a kind of judo move to it, right? Is as evil as it is, that's how good it is that Christ yeah. is willing to to undergo it. Anselm actually has um, one of his prayers. I don't know if this came up in your discussion with Thomas Williams. One of his prayers, the prayer to the cross. And he actually has this really poetic line. I wish I, if we weren't doing a podcast, I would pull it up. But it goes back and forth between the intentions of the people who carried out Christ's crucifixion and his intention. He's like, they desired to kill life. You desired to bring life to the dead. And it's like all these little parallels. Mm -hmm. um, they, de they desired, they intended to uh, punish an innocent person. You intended to rectify the guilty. Like it's all these little beautiful parallelisms. That it, it, so you can start to see that, well, we don't have to deny that it's an evil event in a certain sense, but you can even catch that up into the beauty of that he undergoes it voluntarily makes it even, even more lovely. So I'm amazed that we have packed this much tremendous content into this space. So <laughs> this has been <laughs> awesome. I, I've I got to know like a twofold question. Number one, what future work are you currently working on that will be available to people in you know in the next one, two, three, four years? And then to follow up on that, is there a place that people can go to consistently find that? Oh, you know, I'm an academic, so the answer to the second question is no. Uh, but <laughs> you can follow me on Twitter. I'm my Twitter is private at the moment, but you can if you try to follow me, I'll probably say yes. I'm on Blue Sky and Threads now, too, so um, uh, yeah, who knows where that's all going to go. Yeah. But, uh, okay, so let's see. I um, had the recent piece in the Feshrift for Bruce Marshall, um, uh, Love Incarnate, right? Oh, gosh. Oh, because I'm 
trying to remember the title of the book. Um, <laughs> it's going to kill me. But but uh, anybody who wants to know, send me an email uh, or find me on Twitter. Dmafood at gmail.com is easy to find. But um, but that came out recently. Like I said, I just finished a, an essay about Billy Abraham in a volume about his life and work. And I think another one of those coming up that I'll do another essay for. Um, but as far as this stuff that we talked about today... Uh, you know, my plan is to get this dissertation, uh, get a book proposal out pretty soon. And, uh, so hopefully that's within, within two years, hopefully they'll yeah. be able to read it as a book. But, 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 but right now, if you search on ProQuest, you could just read the dissertation version of it, which I actually think is, is reasonably readable. You can tell me if you agree or not, or, or you could lie, but, um, <laughs> uh, but so, so there's that, um, uh, honestly, interestingly enough, one of the, the most interesting pieces to me about Anselm's treatment of the atonement that isn't talked about much is the, the role of the angels, hmm. both good and bad. And so long term, I'd really like to pursue a, a project or a series of pieces, maybe a book, maybe a series of essays on the role of spirits in accounts of the atonement. Um, and, and if Christ sets right all of if Christ brings about the fulfillment of God's intentions in a cosmic way, is there a way that he sets right the relation between um, humans and other uh, rational beings? Um, it just figures really big in Kurt Deus Homo. And um, a lot of people that I find will say things like, well, who cares if the, you know, if, if angels exist, like it's not, a, it's a, it's an uninteresting question. And to me, it's like, no, this actually, they play a really crucial piece in this story that makes a big difference if they're just not there, um, at least on the face of it. So that's a question I kind of want to pursue long term. Well, that's actually very interesting to me, at least. And whenever you get there, we'll have to do a podcast episode talking about that. Absolutely. So this has been awesome. So thanks, David, for talking with us about all this. Uh, I encourage everybody who's been listening to check out his work. Uh, go follow him on Twitter and wherever else. Who knows if how long threads exist or the other, you know, it's funny to me. I'm like, there's like a 50, 50 chance that something's mm-hmm. successful. Uh, I remember Google plus and you know, it kind of went by the wayside. So who knows? <laughs> yeah. That one was pretty bad. Google reader, uh, you know, that should have stayed, but Google plus was terrible. So yeah. Anyway, uh, thanks guys for listening. This has been uh, the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we'll talk to you guys soon.